welcome to Breaking Protocol. I am your host, Bob Sadowick. And today I am honored as the former mayor of Houston, Ms. Anise Parker, is joining me to discuss all things politics. In addition to serving as the mayor of Houston, Ms. Parker also served on the Houston City Council, I should say, from 1998 until 2003, and as the Houston City Controller from 2004 until 2010. Currently, Ms. Parker is the president and CEO of Victory Fund, the largest LGBTQ organization dedicated to the election of LGBTQ persons at all levels of government. Anise, thank you so much for joining me and our listeners today, and welcome to Breaking Protocol. Thanks, Bob. I am glad to be with you and uh, look forward to the conversation. I love talking shop. Well, you certainly, uh, not to age anybody, but you have, you certainly are a seasoned professional when it comes to, <laughs> <laughs> when it comes to the political arena, I would say. I thought you were supposed to be diplomatic. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, that, remember that <laughs> the title of my show is Breaking Protocol. So, uh, but, but not to, not to, uh, not to get off on the wrong track, wrong track with you. That's for sure. But I would like to take a little walk down memory lane, so to speak. I mean, you, you have a, uh, invaluable amount of experience uh, in the political landscape. Specifically, I would think as it applies to Texas, you've certainly experienced uh, a lot of dynamics over the years. So let's go back a little bit and and tell me, what was it that you woke up one day and said, I'm going to give this a shot. I think I have something to contribute here. Well, it took me a long time to decide that I wanted to actually run for office. I started out as an activist, and yes, I'm going to date myself. And I, there's no secrets. I have a Wikipedia page. I'm about to turn 64. And I attended my first LGBT organizing event in 1975 wow, that's as a college student. So, you know, I wasn't around for Stonewall. I wasn't quite that old, but not too long <laughs> afterwards. And I have been in one way or another, a part of the LGBTQ political movement. Although when I started, it was the gay rights movement. We didn't have the, we didn't use the alphabet uh, since the, uh, since the the mid seventies. And while I had a 20 year career in the oil and gas industry, after I got out of college, I was still an active community volunteer, and I was an officer or a board member of, of dozens of LGBTQ organizations. And then I gradually, you know, you, you grow up, you become a homeowner, you get involved in what's going on in the city. And I also spent about a decade uh, as Miss, uh, you know, Civic Association everything, uh, officer, board member of, of community development, uh, president of a community development corporation, a United Way volunteer, working in, you know, leading my Civic Association, and the two strands came together. I kept being frustrated that the city wasn't doing a better job across a range of issues that affected people and communities that I cared about. And I, but I never anticipated running myself. I was involved in, and in fact, I was served as president for two terms of the our Houston. Gay and Lesbian Political Caucus. So I was helping other people run for office. We couldn't get anyone LGBT elected, although we had candidates who ran. 
but I just, I was frustrated. And uh, so you were doing all this while you were also pursuing a professional private sector career. Correct. I, I, I actually worked for a Republican oil man, Robert Mossbacker for 18 years. I spent two years in another firm and then worked for him for 18 years. And, and did you work as an I, out openly gay person? Yes. And in that. Well, that, and I was, okay. I was arguably one of the most visible lesbian activists in Houston in the, in the eighties, uh, because I was a public spokesperson for the, you know, the gay and lesbian political caucus. I sort of bifurcated my life. I would go to work and do my thing. And, you know, oil company employee by day, activist by night sort of thing. I, I try not to mix the two, although I was perfectly out of visible. And I want to say that it speaks to the power of individuals coming out and, and being out in their families. Bob Mossbacker, who is a great man, and I was a huge fan of his, I had a, little, you know, had a little crush on him. He had an openly lesbian daughter, and uh, I don't I don't know that he never supported my political activities, and actually until I uh, ultimately ran for mayor, and then he did support me, but the early political activities, but he never tried to stop them, and it never had an impact on my job. And I, don't, and I think that is because that he loved his daughter, and, and he didn't, there was no way he could, he could penalize me on the job for something that he wouldn't want to have happen to her. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I hear so many different experiences, as I'm sure you have over the years, of folks who, uh, you know, were unable to pursue certain careers as a result of their sexual orientation or had experiences that were unfavorable because of their sexual orientation. And and still to this day, I think we are dealing in certain segments of our society and and areas of our country where that is still happening, yet there are success stories as well. If there was something specific that you would say to those today who are pursuing careers and from your personal experience about, and let's talk specifically about how you separate separated your activism from your professional life without compromising your personal integrity. Could you give us some insight on that? I didn't bring political conversations or or the the work I was doing as as an activist into into the job. And uh, I don't know that that's necessarily always the healthiest thing, uh, you know, because you know I didn't I didn't talk about what I did on the weekends. I didn't talk about it, it's funny I. I really was a spokesperson for the LGBTQ community and I would be interviewed on the evening news and then I go into work and no one would mention it, including me. And I recall once I got interviewed about some, uh, or had a letter to the editor or something about, uh, stray cats and everybody wanted to talk about it. <laughs> I just didn't want to talk about the gay stuff. Anise, do you think that maybe during that time, and and again, not to date ourselves, but this was pre-internet. This was pre-social media. Absolutely. And do you Absolutely. think that that it was, makes a difference? Yeah, that was most likely helpful as far as your ability to avoid those kind of conversations at work. Yes, but it's also about uh, I think how you, how comfortable you are in your own skin and with yourself, and and how you 
present. I didn't go to work with a chip on my shoulder, and I didn't go to work with an expectation that it would be. Uh, I didn't go in with an expectation that it would be a hostile work environment, but I also didn't go in with an expectation that it would be supportive. But I accidentally rode the tech wave into the oil and gas industry, so I had a unique skill set. And no one else in my company did. So I spent most of my time at work in an office with the door shut, coding on a a desktop computer. So I had some insulation from the rest of the firm and, uh, and, and had some job security because of that unique so you were a, a techie pioneer, so to speak, in the oil and gas industry. Yes. Yeah, that's fantastic. I was. So at what point, so here you are, you're, you've, you've got this incredible career. Clearly, you felt very comfortable at work. Uh, you had a good relationship with the uh, head of the company. You were obviously well-respected for your uh, abilities and the contributions you were making to the company. And one day you decided, I, I'm looking for something else, and it is in the political arena. How did you make that leap? Well, it took a few false starts because I did, I've been on the ballot myself 11 times. I lost my first two races. Okay. And then I won nine races citywide in Houston. And the first time I ran was in 1991, again, the dark ages, long before the Internet. Uh, cell phones were rare back then, and I was recruited by members of the LGBT community who wanted someone willing to run, but to be to run and uh, with a, with a chance of winning. And I let myself get talked into it. I wasn't emotionally prepared. I really wasn't ready to run, uh, and I lost. I ran again in 1995, this time on my own volition, in a special election. And lost, but came in third out of 19 candidates running for one seat. One of the things I did was I went to the uh, LGBT Victory Fund and took their candidate training. But I did some other things as well. And then I won that race. And then I just kept kept winning. And what year was that that you first went to the LGBTQ Victory Fund candidate training the first time? It was in 1995. 95. And then I ran, yeah, and I ran and won my council seat in 1997. So clearly that was beneficial. It taught you something. Yes. I, even though I had been a political activist for a long time and had been involved in campaigns and helped other people run, being a candidate yourself is different. And the tools and techniques of campaigning change regularly. You just mentioned the Internet. That is single dominating thing about campaigning today and being going through the training helped me center myself and helped me figure out what my what my message was what my brand was and how to how to integrate the narrative because the first two times I ran I was a niece Parker gay activist every time I saw my name in print and they didn't use the L word very much back then it was a niece Parker gay activist and I realized that I couldn't be I, I wasn't going to go back in the closet, but I couldn't be an East Parker gay and have people listen to what I had to say. Right. And I had to do certain things in that, the winning campaign, the third campaign. And actually, it's a good lesson for everybody. One of the things I did was I made appointments with the editorial staff 
of both, we still had two papers then, both major newspapers, and the TV stations that covered Those were back in the day when people read the newspaper, right? (laughs) It's true, it's true. But I, I took a portfolio of the newspaper coverage, and I took a, you know, a videotape of the TV coverage and how every time they, they talked about me, an East Parker gay activist, and then they would talk about my opponents by what they did for a living. And I just looked at them, and I had this conversation over and over again. I said, I work for Robert Mossbacker. I worked for him for years and years and years. I'm a volunteer in LGBT organizations, and I am LGBT, but it's not what I do for a living. If you're going to talk about what my opponents do for a living, you need to talk about what I do for a living. If you want to talk about who they live with, you can talk about who I live with. We had that conversation, and I, I could say I'm very persuasive, but I think that it was more that the world was beginning to change, and the awareness within those newsrooms began to change. But the third time I ran, that changed. Well, I think that it's fair to say you had something to do with that change over the years, and that is having those types of conversations face-to-face with the influencers, i.e. the media at the time. So I, I think uh, our community, quite frankly, uh, can extend a big hand of thanks to you for that. I, I I know a little more about your history than we can get into on this show, but it, it, it just allow me to say thank you. I appreciate that. appreciate that. Uh, it, speaking of these campaigns and, and, and politics and elections, Certainly, it's, you know, it's no longer 1995, and things have dramatically changed over the years as a result of not only just the internet, social media, uh, the 24-hour news cycle, so to speak, but now we're in the midst of this coronavirus. And the impact, uh, you know, I, I have worked on a gazillion campaigns over the years, and people are coming to me, candidates right now, asking for advice on how they should proceed with their campaign to be effective. And quite honestly, I'm not sure I have a whole lot of answers for them. And what are you telling? Because I know you're getting a lot more questions than I would ever get. So what are you what are you telling these folks who are actively running campaigns right now in the midst of this, you know, pandemic that we're dealing with? Well, that's actually the work now that I get to do at the Victory Fund and, and the Victory Institute. And we, we train candidates to run, uh, but we also support endorsed candidates. We provide, through a, a portal for our uh, endorsed candidates, we provide links to the latest tools and technology for virtual campaigning. Uh, we also share tips. Uh, that we get from our candidates and, and uh, about how to connect to voters. And, and we continue to try to cross-pollinate having candidates talk to the candidates. A lot of primaries have been postponed. Running a campaign is creating a short-term small business. And you, you, know, you think, okay, this is how long this business has to run. I have to rent phones. I have to have insurance. I have to have an office space. You plan a budget around that, and then suddenly the governor announces, oh, well, the primary is going to be put off for three months, and you have to scramble. So they're, they're real impacts. We preach, uh, we preach field. We preach the value of face-to-face interaction with, uh, with voters, with constituents. You can't do that now. Rallies that candidates love to have build energy. You can't have big public rallies now. A lot of the fundraising takes place in 
you know, an event, house parties, that sort of thing. Can't have those now. So how do you do fundraising? How do you generate excitement? And how do you have those conversations with voters? Advertising? Now it's digital advertising. We work with candidates every day. Here's how you can pivot away from field. Here are, here, here are tools to identify voters. You have to get on the phone. You have to get on the phone. You have to get on the phone. We just, um, we work with candidates. Some candidates are uh, hesitant to ask for money right now because of the economic conditions. And Well, I know that I personally we, am getting a lot of pushback from when, you know, as a fundraiser, and I have been an active fundraiser in um, a campaign since really 2000, uh, asking people for money. And I... And for a while there, I got quite good at it. I'm, I'm. What would you say to someone like myself who, who enjoys actively fundraising for candidates, but I'm at a crossroads at the moment with this coronavirus, and I'm feeling very hesitant and pent up, if you will, to make those phone calls because I know people are struggling and resources are quite frankly, better spent elsewhere. What would you say? Well, first, we never know what someone's individual circumstance is. There are folks out there who are actually doing better in the current environment based on the businesses they're in and their opportunities to to take advantage of the marketplace. There are lots of individuals who still have resources that they're willing to spend. And then finally, and you know this, in, in order to, and I, I don't like to do fundraising, and I'm, I'm kind of smiling that you, <laughs> you enjoy it and that you're good at it, that, you know, fundraising, the key to fundraising is, is to make a connection. And what you're trying is maybe you don't get as much money as you might have gotten before, but the point is to connect to somebody so they understand why you're running, what you hope to accomplish, and why it's important and to get a yes on something. And so what we tell people is you may have to have a different handshake at the beginning. I think it's really important when someone answers the phone that you spend a little time finding out how they're doing physically, get a sense of how they're doing emotionally, just do more probably that handshake, that chit-chat on the front end, but make the ask and try to get to a yes on something. And, uh, you know, if you ask and they say, you know, I can't do that, I'm out of, I'm out of a job, then the ask is, well, I, I could sure use your help volunteering, and you can volunteer virtually from any place in the country. Most of our campaigning is by phone now. Uh, if you have some time on your hands and, and you wouldn't mind getting on the phone for me, you can make a critical difference in my campaign. And you just you work your way through the list. But you have to do it because the campaign is still there and the elections are still there and the elections matter. And everybody who's running is going through the same thing. So how do you they can't give up? How, how much of an impact do you do you suspect social media will play? Uh, as a platform across the board from municipal elections to the national election in this in this November cycle? So social media has changed everything about campaigning except for who shows up to vote. And a there's, a, there's a surprising difference in who shows up in municipal elections and who shows up in the national elections. And so all of my all of my races have been at the local level. 
albeit they've been big races. Houston's bigger than population wise is bigger than 15 states, but it's, it's local level. And it's those voters tend to skew older and uh, more conservative. The national elections are dominated by who's at the top of the ticket. And that tends to, you know, generate who shows up. So you have to have a two pronged strategy to connect. And it's important, obviously, there's a significant percentage of voters out there today that are still not participating in the social media world, I suspect. Correct. Correct. And uh, I mean, I have a, I'll confess, I have a, I have a Facebook page that was created when I, when I started running for office (laughs) and I help, I do my own, I tweet on Twitter and I try not to be too snarky, but sometimes I can't help it. But my Facebook page is managed by staff. I just, that's not my, it's not my thing. And uh, people are all over the map as to how engaged they are in social media. So you have to, to be a successful campaign or candidate, one, you have to understand what your constituent base looks like. Then you have to figure out how best to communicate with them. And you have to communicate with them in multiple ways. There's no one right way. Now what we're trying to achieve is the closest thing to a face-to-face conversation. So a lot of candidates are putting together Zoom town halls or virtual, virtual town halls, virtual house parties. Oddly enough, in some ways, they're easier to find. They're easier to reach. And they may be more willing to spend time in a conversation, you know, getting on a, a virtual town hall for 30 minutes where they might have come to the door and kind of given you the brush off. Uh, now they, they're maybe willing, more willing to engage. That's a really interesting point that you make. I was taking a look at the Victory Fund website a few days ago, victoryfund.org, by the way, for the listeners out there who might want to take a look at the Victory Fund website. And I wanted, I was curious, like how many LGBTQ candidates are running for office uh, in this election cycle? And you are, you have profiled, or I should say the Victory Fund has profiled 185 candidates that are running for elected positions every, from everything from municipal to state and federal levels. Uh, for those, there's a lot of LGBTQ people out there sitting on the sidelines, and maybe there's even some LGBTQ candidates that aren't on your website. I'm not, I, I don't know what the criteria is, but there are, there are, there are more than 850 LGBT candidates running across the country. And I'll, I'll give you a sneak preview. One of the things we're thinking about going into the future is uh, we want to figure out if we can virtually connect all of those. 850 plus candidates somehow create a database so that people can find them. We're still going to endorse the ones that we think meet our endorsement criteria, but it's important to acknowledge all the folks who are running and because whether or not they're viable candidates in our criteria, it still matters that people stand up and they want public service. They want an opportunity to, uh, to serve their their neighbors and friends. And if they run good campaigns, whether they win or lose, they make a difference for the LGBTQ community. Do you feel that candidates that have no viability at all who present themselves for public office bring a, 
a level of notoriety to the the cause of equality or do you think they shouldn't do that or do you even have an opinion about that? There's a whole lot of reasons why why, why people run. What we hope is that the people who run uh, make the rest of the community proud how they comport themselves. So there are members of the LGBTQ community that are Republican that have that support the Republican platform. Are there any of those candidates that align with the criteria of the Victory Fund? And are there any of those that have been endorsed? Yes, we are. Uh, we are bipartisan. We always have Republican candidates, although I will say that because we are pro-choice, they are few and far between. We maintain something called the uh, the Out for America map. And so if you do an Internet search for Out for America, and it shows you every sitting LGBT elected official. Actually, there are about 850 of those. So well, that's the same number. But uh, most of our Republican elected officials are in municipal or you know nonpartisan races. Sure. Uh, so they don't they don't because they have a hard time getting through their primaries. So in Texas, let's talk about Texas for a <laughs> moment. <laughs> um, because I found Texas, this. Vi- well, you know, you and I both live in Texas, so I want to talk about yeah. Texas for a moment. I mean, we'll get we'll get back to some national stuff, but yeah. um, I found this quite interesting. I found this actually fascinating. I I don't know if you know, but I grew up in a household full of women. I have three older sisters, and I uh, I'm very influenced and have been influenced over the years by the positions. Uh, of women, and quite frankly, the hurdles that women have to overcome uh, in the path to equality. Uh, in in Texas, of the Victory Fund endorsed candidates, uh, you have 16 candidates endorsed in the state that that I'm aware of, and 14 of those 16 are women, which I personally find extraordinary. But tell me a little bit about why you would think that more women within the LGBTQ community in a state like Texas would would present themselves for public office versus because it just seems very lopsided to me. And I'm I'm just curious what your thoughts are about that. It's mostly men who run for office, overwhelmingly men who run for office. When I became mayor of Houston, I was the uh, first openly LGBT mayor of any major American city, and obviously the first of a top 10 U.S. city, but I was only the 10th woman in American history to lead a top 10 U.S. city. Uh, there have now been 12, the latest being Lori Lightfoot, who's the uh, lesbian mayor of Chicago. Of the 12 women to lead top 10 U.S. cities, six of us were Texas Mayors, and uh, and it's astounding. You know, New York has never had a woman. L.A. has never had a woman. There are these much more liberal places that haven't had a, wo- a woman. Two mayors of San Antonio, two mayors of Dallas, two mayors of Houston, who were who were women. Do you get the impression that maybe heterosexual men are less threatened by voting for a openly gay woman versus an openly gay man? Would there be any validity to that? It's it's quite possible. When I became mayor of Houston, I'd already been elected citywide six times. 
And I was the familiar choice. I was actually the most conservative of the three valuable Democrats running to be mayor of Houston. But it's also important to be clear and transparent about who you are and what your positions are. And uh, we've also elected two out lesbian sheriffs in Texas. Harris County has an out lesbian DA. We actually, I think Travis County had one previously. So yeah. And we had one here in Dallas County well. at one time as well. Yeah. Uh, you know, yeah. Lupe Valdez, she was... Uh, the sheriff, yes. That's, Lupe and, uh, and Margo Fraser, who was the sheriff of, of Travis County. So, uh, you know, women who demonstrate that they are capable and competent and tough and able to enable to take anything that comes. Well, I think it's personally, rewarded. I think it's extraordinary because honestly, I have a tendency to believe and, you know, this is just my personal opinion. I have no facts on it, but I just have a tendency to believe that women take a more pragmatic approach to decision making when it comes to political leadership. I could be entirely wrong, but that's just my my opinion for whatever two cents it's worth. I want to ask you, we've we talked a lot about here uh, running for office, uh, effective campaign techniques. We've, we've touched on fundraising a bit. I want to talk about the actual getting elected part. And there's a lot of a lot of concern being raised uh, and a lot of of noise being raised around how we are going to vote come November. And one of the big noises of all of this is vote by mail. And I was listening to one of my favorite podcasts the other day. Uh, it's a Texas-based podcast called Yolitics uh, with uh, a couple of guys from WFAA-TV, Jason Whiteley and, and Jason Wheeler. And they do a really interesting kind of conversational type uh, podcast. And they were speaking with uh, the Secretary of State for the state of Washington, which is one of five states that votes entirely by mail. That's the only way you can vote in the state of Washington is by mail. That's it. And they were speaking to the Secretary of State of the state of Washington, which oversees the election process. And I thought it was very interesting because she is one of only two elected Republicans statewide in the state of Washington, and she's the only female Republican statewide elected in the state of Washington. And her name is Kim Wyman. And she really was very uh, fascinating in her explanation of the steps that they take to ensure security and make sure that the votes are uh, counted accurately and that it's it's all legitimate. With that said, nationwide, a recent poll indicates that 70% of Americans favor at least supporting voting by mail as an option. And what are your thoughts about vote by mail and the whole fraud argument, specifically as it pertains to Texas? But, you know, we might as well touch on it nationwide as well. I think vote by mail makes absolute sense. You know, it's interesting because, as I said, Kim Wyman, who's the Secretary of State of Washington, is a Republican and one of two elected statewide. And she was 100 percent supportive and committed to vote by mail. 
Uh, she gave some very good statistics in regards to the fraud argument. I mean, less than 100 votes statewide. Uh, I think we probably have, we can say we have more fraudulent votes in Texas than without vote by mail uh, than 100. Interestingly enough, what would, and not to put you on the spot, uh, but I have to ask, Ken Paxton, our attorney general, recently indicated that if you wanted to vote by mail and use the excuse that the coronavirus was a a reasonable uh, fear of wanting a vote by mail ballot, that you would be breaking the law of Texas. Do you see it that way? Voting officials in, in most of the counties across Texas have indicated that they believe it is appropriate to uh, allow people to use that as a justification to vote. And then we saw in other states where forcing people to vote in person has actually uh, spread COVID-19. Now, I wouldn't take Ken Paxton's word on anything, (laughs) Uh, but this is a, he, he is making a political argument not a not a legal argument and not one based on fact. So tell me, in regard to the LGBTQ candidates that are currently running for office, who are you most optimistic about? Well, right here in Texas, Gina Ortiz-Jones is a juggernaut. She ran uh, two years ago for Congress, came less than a thousand votes away from knocking off an incumbent came back hard, never stopped campaigning. She absolutely will flip a red the blue seat and will be successful. But uh, we, we have an opportunity to double the number of LGBTQ members of Congress. John Holdley in Michigan, John Blair in, in New Mexico, Gina. But our main work is at the state house level. And uh, the best way to see who we think is, is the, you know, the top tier is go to our website, uh, victoryfund.org. And uh, we have two categories. We talk about uh, game changer candidates, which are our, our statewide and congressional candidates and spotlight candidates who are down ballot candidates that we think can, can make a difference. Often state senators have the opportunity to filibuster and stop legislation. So just putting just one in a state Senate can stop the really egregious anti-LGBT bills. So Chevron Jones, for example, who's a black state rep in Florida who was moving, running to move up from the state house to the state Senate could have a significant impact. Tim Johnson is a lesbian pastor in Georgia who is running for the state Senate there. And uh, again, there's a uh, five open, openly LGBT members of the Georgia House. Having someone in it would be a one-two punch that would help us stop the bad stuff. Let's talk about some of that legislation. What? 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 Give us, give us a, uh, an example or two of current legislation that potentially LGBTQ folks are not aware of that could be extremely harmful, and that, and why it is so important to put these folks in at the Senate level uh, of a state house. So everybody, I assume, is familiar with the, the flurry of 
anti-trans bathroom bills that have those are still happening. They're still happening. You know, Texas keeps trying to do it. Fortunately, we keep shooting it down. But uh, there are also... I mean, I don't mean to be disrespectful, but I have to wonder what in the world these people are doing in these bathrooms that they're so afraid. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't understand <laughs> at all. But there, but there are still anti, uh, anti-LGBT adoption bills that pop up all across the country. There are bills trying to protect the uh, perverted practice of conversion therapy. And the most insidious are those that purport to be religious liberty bills, but are in fact uh, a license to discriminate. Oh, this is against my religion. I don't have to serve you if you come into my restaurant or my store, those sorts of things. And uh, what we have discovered is that Putting one person in a state legislature slows things down, but it doesn't stop things. Getting a critical mass, which is usually three, uh, means that we pretty much can stop the most egregious things. And then having a caucus level, in Texas we have five, in Georgia we have five, you begin to be able to do uh, proactive stuff. I have to say I'm quite proud of our Texas caucus uh, this last cycle. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe every one of those are women. As we say, we get uh, women and women in Texas get some respect. That there's no doubt about that. You know, I was <laughs> look. We both support. Obviously, we are big advocates of women in office. And I and once again, I'll say it. I just think that they approach things from a, a much more pragmatic way. And and. They have a tendency I, I to get that things women, done. Women govern differently. Women govern differently. They don't. I don't necessarily think they're better, but they are different. Uh, women tend to be more communicative and more collaborative, and often women tackle just because of different life experiences. They they champion issues that uh, men may not think of. You know, it was a year ago that I had an incredible opportunity to sit down with you at dinner in Houston, Texas, at a friend's house, and. Uh, the reason we were having that dinner is Pete Buttigieg was running for president at the time. And we were there basically to raise a level of awareness about the LGBTQ community on a national scale. Uh, I personally think it was a very positive move. But what are your thoughts about Pete's campaign at this point, his future, uh, what the political landscape looks like on the national level. Have we as an LGBTQ community entered uh, that platform? Are we there to stay or was this a one-off? I think Pete has an unlimited political future. He was a phenomenal candidate. He made, uh, he made us proud. He did us well every day. He was in that race. He progressed farther than I thought, think most of us thought was possible. And he made it so much easier for down-ballot candidates to step up and run. Because that is the biggest platform, the biggest stage, and he held his own there. And that had to inspire folks at, at, at every level of politics. One of the goals for Victory is to make sure that there is a pool of, say, 20 ready-to-run-for-president candidates out there. Not that they will. But right now we have right now we have ten. We have uh, we have two United States senators. We have two openly LGBT governors. We have two attorneys general. The, you know it's the statewide 
officials who have the ability to generally to to step into the national spotlight. Pete sort of vaulted past that as a mayor of a mid-sized city, but having a a pool of folks that we can develop who who are ready to run for president is already something that we've achieved and we want to we want to grow and uh, Pete showed everybody what's possible. What are your thoughts on speaking of pools of what I'll say are influencers if you will? What what's your thoughts about LGBT folks that are appointed to positions within the presidential administration and how important is that? And do you do any work around that? We do. And I am so glad you asked that question. The Victory Institute side, our C3 side of the house hosts something called the presidential appointments project, our presidential appointment pipe, presidential appointments initiative. And we did it during the Obama administration as well. And that is that we are a, sort of a neutral broker for LGBT folks who want to be appointed to uh, positions in uh, a new administration. There are more than 300 uh, out individuals who served in the Obama administration at all levels, including some United States ambassadors, as you know. And uh, what we want to see is, again, uh, proportional representation in the next administration, as well as a more diversity uh, in the representation of the LGBTQ community. Uh, that, that we'd love to see a cabinet-level appointment. We'd love to see more ambassadors, but, but women and uh, ambassadors of color, trans ambassadors. Are you confident that should the Biden administration win this election that you would see that? In, in a Biden administration? Absolutely. Absolutely. Not, not, a, not a doubt in my mind. We actually had our appointment project, uh, the Presidential Appointments Initiative, uh, set up when Trump was elected. Not surprisingly to anybody that's listening, there was no interest whatsoever. There are openly LGBT appointees, but there is no interest in uh, trying to achieve diversity or uh, representation. Uh, these are all the appointments are one off. I would suspect in the Trump administration that those appointments were, though they may be LGBTQ individuals, weren't for the purpose of forwarding uh, equality initiatives. <laughs> they are not. They are not there to uh, to represent the community or to uh, and, and tend not to be uh, particularly engaged on uh, pro LGBT initiatives. So this has been. An incredibly enlightening conversation, Mayor Parker. I um, I can't thank you enough on behalf of our listeners. I truly want to express my sincere gratitude for your participation on our show today. We wish you all the best, uh, and especially as it pertains to your continued leadership at Victory Fund. And hopefully, when we get on the other side of this coronavirus thing, uh, we can sit down and break bread again one day. I would like that very much. And I, I hope your uh, your listeners would like to find out more, victoryinstitute.org, victoryfund.org, outforamerica.org, see the work we're doing and get involved. I have to ask, is there a book coming out about your experiences <laughs> anytime soon? You know, I've been asked about that. And it's, it's funny. I don't, I'm always about what's next, what's next. And it's, it's hard for me to look back. Uh, you know, I, I, I feel a little guilty that I'm not taking more time to put it down, but 
as someone who has been involved in the LGBT rights movement for so long and politics for so long and uh, so many levels, I should. Uh, but there's nothing down the works right now. Well, let me encourage you to do so, because I think there's so much that we all can learn from your experiences, and there's so much you have to share. Again, I thank you for being here today. I thank all of you listeners for listening to Breaking Protocol with Bob Sadowick. Please click and subscribe to receive notifications for future podcasts. And if you haven't had an opportunity to read my book, Breaking Protocol, Forging a Path Beyond Diplomacy, you can order it from your favorite online retailer or download it to your Kindle or tablet. Thank you once again for joining us and have a wonderful day. Many blessings.